Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. I feel like we're recording at like a not normal time um, in the morning, and I feel like my voice is like not functioning. Like I need some like WD forty in my like voice. WD forty. Oh my god. Like she's this still waking like... up, you guys. I just need a little lubrication in my voice box. I think there's just, like she needs to wake up. But Samantha just got back from Los Angeles. How was your time? on the west coast let's hear it low key i have like the best fucking week of my life okay that's really dramatic but it was so needed so fun it's so funny because i wasn't like the biggest la fan the other time i had been Mm -hmm. and then this time i like freaking loved it like Mm -hmm. i maybe it was just like a little bit of like what i did who i saw like all of that but like it just was like so much fun and i kind of was like getting like i was like this is why everyone loves it here this is why everyone moves like whatever and i was like literally getting on the flight yesterday I was like do I cry I don't want to go home <laughs> wow I know the like biggest east coast stan is vibing with the west coast wait for your first trip like what part of LA were you in because that's also like a big we thing. did like Santa Monica which I was there like again like throughout the trip but like I think we did like that we did like some of the touristy things but nothing too touristy because I really don't like that stuff like I'm not like a big fan yeah. of let me stand in front of the Eiffel Tower and take a picture like you know like yeah. snorkel art like I want to actually like do stuff people actually do whatever but this was like I think it was just a little bit more casual and I like met so many people and like we did a lot more like outdoorsy stuff so like that was fun and then we like went to a lot of really fun parties also but it just was like better mixed of like yeah well and it's and like yeah, and being with people who live there and, like, already know where to go, where to avoid totally. is huge. But I'm glad you liked it. I mean, I'm excited for you to make it up San Francisco because she's never been, you guys. But I know, it's crazy. L.A., I have certain feelings about it. I mean, I love it and I hate it at the same time. But definitely love the pockets you were in. Like, those are, those are the best. Like, it is, like, there's more nature, there's more space, there's, like, it's just more a little bit more chill where – some parts of the city, like, I would rather die than be in. <laughs> Sorry. Honestly, like, I think that was, like, part of it, like, that changed it. Like, one of my friends lived in Hermosa, and, like, that was, like, so beachy. And, like, yeah. her, even, like, I was doing some work the other day when I was there, which obviously not enough work was happening during this trip. But regardless, <laughs> like, it was, like, all sunlit and surfery. And I think last time I went, I was, like, thinking of, like, surfery, which, like, everyone keeps telling you, like, I was thinking of San Diego kind of thing, and then I went, and it was not like that in the way that mm. we did the trip and whatever, and this time it really was, like, more of that combination. Yeah, that so is I Hermosa like... and, like, that part you were in. That's why I like that area, too. Like, that's where I went to school. It was just more, like, beachy and chill, 
And then yeah. even Santa Monica, like, it is beachy, but it is more fast-paced and, like, city and in a way. But, yeah, I'm glad you liked it. Yeah. I And you even came for a little bit. I did. I came for literally 24 hours, I think. And we got some work done. We did. A very special project that's really coming together, Samantha. Just... I am very excited. To touch face. I think it's going to be really good. So, yeah, we got to spend a day in L.A. together. Anyone saw the, like, little content that we posted about it, but... Yeah, you guys are going to see a lot of pictures of us in the same outfit. In the same exact outfit. But, like, we look really cute, so, like, I'm sorry. But I just won't be the girl that, like, brings around outfit changes to take pictures in, like... I know, like, we should be those girls because half of our job is is content, but Mm. I just don't think it can ever be me. But, like, honestly, all the respect to influencers everywhere who do do that. Like, I, we literally shot behind a camera for an hour, and I actually was ready to go hibernate for a year afterwards. (laughs) Like, there's something about making content and just having to, like, we were talking about this afterwards, like, having to perform and just, like, flip a switch and, like, be cute and bubbly or whatever, it really takes a lot out of you. So, shout out to the influencers and, honestly, actresses everywhere. (laughs) Truly, truly an art because, let me tell you, exhausted. Exhausted. But we do have an amazing shout out to give. Because Opal Lee, if you guys don't remember, we had an episode with Opal Lee about Juneteenth last year. The grandmother of Juneteenth, they call her. And because of her amazing work through the years, she helped get Juneteenth recognized as a national holiday last year. And we literally got an episode with her where they had just found out the news that it became a national holiday. Like, literally five minutes before so it was a pretty iconic moment for this show so she is now nominated for a nobel peace prize for it which is amazing and we just love her and couldn't stand anymore literally so epic i still that episode gives me chills like everyone should definitely go back and listen to it it's one of the the video we have of it literally yeah that tiktok too especially but yeah her we'll have to like repost that she just gives me chills. She's just such an amazing activist and she's so passionate. She's just like so absolutely inspirational and like shows that like you got to just keep chugging. You're going to get going. there. Gonna, keep going. You're going to make it happen. And she definitely did. And definitely an inspiration to us in so many different ways. But you guys should see it to believe it, which luckily we do have that available to you guys. So if you're not following us on TikTok, it's at Girl on the Gov. If you haven't listened to the episode, shockingly it's from june get it june yeah on those dots 2021 is. which is so weird to say was last year but it was somehow yeah but regardless check it out check obviously it out. go like all the posts that she's in let's try and make this magic happen yes we will repost to the like tiktok so it's easier to find on our instagram and stuff but it is the cutest moment, and I was holding back tears in that moment. So we would post it so everyone can see and feel what we're talking about. We almost had emotions. It was crazy. It's crazy. Like, these two emotionless witches over here <laughs> were holding back tears. So that's when you know. But let's definitely get into this episode. We have yet another amazing interview. Samantha, let's hear it. 
Oh, yes. Literally and honestly, super timely, not to be selfish, but to always be selfish. This is like a California moment, our mm. interviewee. Shout and out. I actually, one of my friends was making me practice the pronunciation of a town that's involved in this whole story uh. all week. I'm still not going to be able to do it. And he's going to definitely call me and be like, Sam. But, was that, why was that raised? Oh, because I was telling him about like who oh. interviewed. And I was like trying to do it. And he was like, oh my God. And I was like, I just. Let's do your attempt right now. Sam? Well, honestly, let's introduce, introduce her. Okay. Okay. And let's just, like, hear it flow naturally out of you and see how you do. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm so scared. Okay, well, to give you guys a little bit of background, this episode is a, another focus on climate change. We are constantly trying to cover this topic from a variety of points of view and really pull back the different layers. It's really complicated. We definitely don't know everything by any means, and we're trying to learn along with you guys. So this particular episode is coming from a California perspective from a initiative out of the Romero Institute called Let's Green CA, which overall, wow, I'm like not breathing as I'm doing this. I think I've like held my breath during this entire time. <laughs> Anyways, as I have an asthma attack mid, mid-introduction. You're nervous. You're nervous. I'm so this nervous about this pronunciation. <laughs> it's okay. I've, I've mispronounced. Sweating. You will have to mispronounce things 1,000 more times in order to catch up to my amount of mispronunciations on this show. So... That's actually just a fair it. point. I'm going to feel yeah. better about myself on that one. <laughs> That's our friendship. Thank you. But nonetheless, Let's Green CA is an initiative uh, that's working to have the state of California declare a climate emergency. So there are some interesting nuance to this conversation, why that could be effective, what symbolism can do in politics. And this discussion comes to us via an interview with Heidi Harmon, who is a senior public affairs director at the Romero Institute and is also the former mayor of San Luis Obispo. No. Damn it. No, I know it's wrong. San no, honestly, Luis it's not Obispo? Like, that's not wrong. I. How is that not I Louis? Ju- no, I, I think I say Louis. I say San Luis Obispo. Yeah, I think it's said like multiple ways. She also talks, she explains it too in the, in the interview. It's called slow as well. Yeah, no, I just call it slow. So shout out to any slow listeners, Cal Poly listeners. Yeah, we're going to dive into it today. So Samantha, you forgot your favorite part. So let's hear it. Anyways, regardless, without further ado, here's Heidi. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I was the mayor of San Luis Obispo for yeah. the last five years. So I recently, just a couple months ago, stepped down from that role to continue to advocate for climate action, which is the reason I got into politics in the first place. Amazing. So for me, it was probably about 20 years ago or so. And I was a young single mom of two kids. And I started to hear about this thing called global warming. And I'm sure it was Al Gore's fault. <laughs> and, <laughs> You know, like I always say, you know what it's like when you're minding your own business and some guy comes along and changes your life forever. Mm-hmm. And for me, that was Al Gore in many ways. And, you know, and his movie, of course, Inconvenient Truth, I think was the first time a lot of folks that are outside of the science and, and directly re- in, um, related to politics started to hear about global warming. And I, I could tell then what has become even more clear now, which is that my children's lives were going to be directly negatively impacted and potentially even shortened. 
And so as a mother in particular, I really felt like I had a responsibility and an opportunity to do something about that. Uh, I had no, I had a college degree, but I, I, I was um, homeschooling my kids. And so I was, I was a house cleaner. So I was essentially a maid and a mom. And I went on this political journey of activism and that eventually led me to run for office and become the mayor of my community. It's awesome. Oh, I, Al Gore, you know, no, and I was yeah, gonna say too. I remember seeing it too. I remember no. there was like a university near me, like growing up and they had like a big showing and he came and he spoke about it and it being like this big deal getting to go and like, yeah. How we've much talked really about we've it. talked about that this movie on the show before too because I like one of my first political memories was so young that I my mom would like take me to all these viewing parties for the inconvenience truth like in our town it was just like definitely a pivotal movie in my life as well it's like crazy definitely a catalyst for kind of waking up to what's going on. Yeah, I feel like we're in another moment of a film making that kind of impact in a completely different way. And I think Don't Look Up is maybe having a a similar impact on folks. So kind of from, but it's been, I don't know, I'm going to say around 20 years though, since Inconvenient Truth came out. Certainly we haven't done nearly enough to to say the least on this issue. Totally, totally. And now we're like, hold, 20 years? Oh my God. Oh my God, that's (laughs) terrifying. But regardless to now, you are now working at the Romero Institute. Can you give mm-hmm. those that don't know an idea of, you know, what the Institute does, what your role looks like there, you know, sort of paint us that picture. Sure. So the Romero Institute used to be called the Christic Institute. It has a decades long history of social justice law. So they worked on things that are definitely before your time and your audience's time. But if they're not familiar, I would encourage folks to take a minute and look them up. But for example, working on the Karen Silkwood case, which they made a movie out of starring Meryl Streep, the the Pentagon Papers, the Iran-Contra affair, as it was called, and a situation that was quite serious called Three Mile Island and things like that. And so they have a long history of working on things from a legal perspective. And then a few years ago, they also um, developed an organization called the Lakota People's Law Project, again, coming from a legal-based perspective, working with Indigenous folks and the Lakota people in particular to fight oil projects in their area, particularly what's referred to as Line 3 which is a particular pipeline. And then the other arm of our organization is called Let's Green California. And that's where where I work. I'm the senior public affairs director for Let's Green California. And we're really operating with the understanding that California could and should be, and in many ways thinks it is, but isn't the global leader on climate action. And so we feel like we have everything we need here, including a long history of environmental action, a a state that tends towards more progressive policies and all the technology and innovation here in our state to be not only the national leader, but a global leader on climate action. And so our policies are trying to move us in that direction. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get into a little too about Let's Green California. Like what is... Like, how are you guys working to accomplish all of that? What is the day-to-day like? Yes. So one of our missions, and this is a mission that is shared with many other organizations throughout the state, is encouraging or demanding that Governor Newsom declare a state of climate emergency in the state of California. And he's used this language in the past, but hasn't made an official declaration around climate action. Side note, I'm sure I've noted that his budget proposal came out yesterday, and there is a lot in there on climate action, and we continue to feel like we still need to do more. So we'd like to hear him use the language of state of emergency because we feel clear that it is a state of emergency and and 
would want him to use those extra powers and access to resources that a declaration of state of emergency would allow for to create the conditions for a more swift and just transition away from toxic and dirty and antiquated fuels to the green renewable energy future that we're all trying to create. So that's one of the things we're doing. Additionally, we're working on policy that's currently evolving around electrification. And so right now we're focusing on electrification in the transportation sector, which is the Uh, biggest sector in terms of greenhouse gas emissions in the state of California. So working on creating policy that would incentivize folks to get electric vehicles and have all the infrastructure around that that is needed for people to to transition their, their personal transportation to electric and again, away from toxic and detrimental fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. So a lot going on. A lot going on. Yeah. (laughs) I think one of, one of the things that you said is actually, you know, a stupid question that we want to ask and we want to clarify on too, because I think a lot of people just don't know this. And I, until, you know, sort of looking into this, I don't know if I really fully understood the breadth of it is either, but what does it really mean? Like if a governor declares, you know, a state of emergency, obviously in this case, specifically, you know, climate emergency, like what extra powers does that necessarily give them? How does that work? So that's a great question. And that's a question of some debate, actually. So when I talk to other folks that are also calling on the governor to declare a state of climate emergency, there is some question about what that might actually look like. And we have a team of attorneys on our in our organization that have looked at that and do believe that just like when you declare a state of emergency around fire or other weather-related events that um, can kick off access to extra funding. And I, I hate to use the word powers, but but that is really the word, yeah. you know, to, to, to do certain things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Some of those, when you do declare certain types of states of emergency, you are also accessing federal funding. And so in the state of California, that's not as much what we're talking about, although we do wish the federal government was doing more on climate action, that's for sure. And there are a lot of folks that I've talked to that feel like Gavin, I'm sorry, Governor Newsom has everything. Gav. <laughs> we call him Gav. Doesn't he feel like for like a, feels like a personal friend, doesn't he? That he already has everything he needs to do what is necessary to transition us away from toxic fossil fuels and that declaring a state of emergency might be largely symbolic. Um, Even Mm. if that ended up legally being the case, I'd still believe that those types of declarations are really important, but they need to come with teeth, so to speak, and Mm. meaningful policies right behind it. Policies like the immediate end to fossil fuel extraction, basically, you know, in addition to things that are more in the environmental justice area, setbacks, for example, which is a conversation that's happening now about current fossil fuel, existing fossil fuel projects and how close they are to communities, in particular, lower income communities of color, and a lot of other meaningful policies that need to come right behind the declaration of climate emergency in order for that to be a meaningful statement and policy for him to pursue. Mm -hmm. I have a question too. I'm curious, like, you know, when you call on him to, you know, declare a climate emergency, what does that process even look like? Is that just like, whether it's you guys or other organizations who are calling on that, are you lobbying? Like, how does that process really work to like put that pressure on him? What do you guys do to, to, you know, achieve that? So I reach out to city councils and super supervisors around the state and encouraging them to get a resolution to declare or to ask 
or demand that Governor Newsom declare a state of emergency. That's one of the ways. But what's starting to happen, and I don't have details yet, but I would just sort of want to get your listeners hopefully excited about a potential in-person action on Earth Day that would galvanize a lot of these organizations that have similar goals around climate action and environmental justice to come together on Earth Day to in person in Sacramento, potentially, uh, again, the details are, this is a, this is a evolving idea to, you know, really get a lot of folks to have a grassroots movement in person calling on the governor to declare a state of emergency. So we're going about this from a lot of different angles. We have a petition on our website at Let's Green California, if folks want to go there and sign that petition. So just trying to build momentum and galvanize people from a lot of different angles, but definitely working with other electeds throughout the state of California to create resolutions calling on the governor to do that. Have we heard like a response from him yet? Has he made any type of response as to why he hasn't committed to doing this? I have not heard him respond specifically to this call to declare an official state of emergency. He has used this language in speeches. I think he said once, for example, this is a climate dam emergency, for example. And so he's well aware of the situation that the world, but in particular, California faces right. with wildfire droughts and sea level rise. You know, you're really starting to see a lot of articles and maybe you've noticed them too, even in just the past few weeks and certainly in this last year, talking about is California going to be a viable place to live anymore? Mm -hmm. That's a very serious question for all of us, but certainly for a governor of a state that is often generally considered one of the um, states that people would most like to live in to really be faced with sort of an existential crisis as a state, um, looking at the future viability of of the state as a place to, to continue to live with all that we're faced with, with climate crisis. Totally. Yeah. I have a question too, in terms of the outreach and you're talking about these city councils, supervisors and whatnot. And of course the, you know, the state is huge. It's diverse. It has many opinions on so many issues. What has been sort of the variety of opinions or feedback that you've gotten from these different entities? And are there any themes that you're sort of seeing, you know, from these conversations? The main thing I'm hearing, which is 100% valid and I'm absolutely in agreement with is that we were way past time to just have symbolic statements, right? And I think that obviously politicians get accused of that all the time, right? You know, that it's easy to stand or no, actually having been there myself, it's not necessarily easy, but it's a lot easier to stand on a microphone and make a lot of declarations and big statements. Um, it's a lot harder to follow up with meaningful action. Right. And there's way too much at stake. Like, you know, the future itself <laughs> is at stake. Yeah. Like there couldn't be more at stake. And so it, it is, again, especially for communities that are experiencing these things first and worse, and also for workers that are deeply and rightfully concerned about the loss of their jobs as we transition away from some of those tech, those anti technologies, there's a lot at stake here. And so there has to be meaningful, actionable commitments on the part of the governor and the legislature as a whole. Uh, You know, I think because the state 
has this reputation of being very progressive. The the legislature has a reputation of being predominantly democratic, et cetera. And on paper, all that's true. But time and time again, we see uh, a lot of disappointing outcomes that are not getting us to where we need to go. Again, I just want to also acknowledge that the governor's proposed budget does have a lot in there about climate action. It's a 400-page document, so I haven't had a chance to look at all the details, but the general takeaway from the climate community is yay thank you and there's still also a lot more more right. to do that seems to be the theme here mm-hmm. but like even you know federally too with looking at things like build back better and what's passing there but kind of moving into this topic a little deeper and just getting a better understanding of this crisis we kind of want to run it back and talk about the fossil fuel industry a little bit and kind of just if you can give us a snapshot of really the fossil fuel industry and their involvement and contribution to climate change. <laughs> which is I'm, a behemoth. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, there there's especially in the last year or so, there's been a lot of great more, I would say, investigative type work going on around all of this. I would look to journalists like Amy Westerfeld, who has a couple different podcasts and does a lot of writing on this in particular. Um, and a lot of other folks out there too, who've done a beautiful job of gathering sort of the timeline around all this. But the short story is, is that we've known about the impacts of fossil fuels on our climate for well over a hundred years. And the fossil fuel industry has done a beautiful job of creating doubt around what might happen. (laughs) Absolutely. And they have literally used the exact same strategy, but literally the exact same people in many cases that created the same type of campaign for the tobacco industry. Yeah. You know, the tobacco industry, just like the fossil fuel industry, eventually never really came out and said, well, these are good for you. Right. But they came out with a doubt strategy that was like, mm-hmm. well, we don't really know. Mm-hmm. And that's all it takes, it turns out, for to, to try and uh, to soften people's response to these existential threats. And unfortunately, you know, even though it was, it was President Nixon, uh, a Republican who was president when the Environmental Protection Agency was first created and a lot of other environmental policies at that time. Since that time, environmental policy and certainly climate policy has become very politicized. And, you know, now if you're in one party or another, you're either for or against it uh, as a political stance, as opposed to taking what should be a scientific and, and moral approach to this, to this crisis. And so the fossil fuel industry, and you're starting to see lawsuits coming now, but I, I would I think it would be easy to predict that you're going to start to see a flood of lawsuits against the fossil fuel industry, holding them accountable for their significant role in (laughs) potentially the end of civilization as we know it. Right. And that's not hyperbolic. I wish it was. So, yes. And they continue to dig in. They continue to dig in. And now we're in the sort of transition area where you see a lot of greenwashing. You see a lot of, frankly, fake policies and ideas like so-called clean coal, whatever that is, even the term natural gas, you know, like how many of us realized that natural gas is actually methane gas. And when we turn on our stoves, we're releasing all of these toxic fumes into our home. You know, they've done a beautiful job in manipulating us and including coming up with things like carbon footprint. That's the fossil fuel industry's language and and idea. Why? Because it shifts the blame to me as an individual. 
oh shoot, I didn't ride my bike enough. I went on one plane trip. I had meat a couple of times. Oh, climate change is my fault. Mm -hmm. And no doubt we do play a role, but it, this is a huge systemic issue Mm -hmm. and the responsibility really is at the feet of the fossil fuel industry and the politicians that have been bought out by them. Totally. Yeah. And I think you point to a really good term for people to understand in there and that's greenwashing. Do you mind just giving a little bit of the backstory there of what that term means for our listeners that might not know? Sure. It's really predominant. I wish I had a really good example off the top of my head, but it's basically the fossil fuel industry does it. But at this point, almost every industry is doing it right. Trying to kind of get on the, get on board and understanding that, especially the younger generations, your generation in particular is very environmentally minded. And so wanting to at least project an image of environmental responsibility, but when you really peel back, um, the layers, so to speak, underneath that are, are remain a lot of really terrible environmental policies that are still incredibly detrimental. You see this with plastics. Plastics as a whole industry itself is, a, is an aspect of the fossil fuel industry. And I know that it seems like younger people in particular are very concerned about waste and plastics, plastics in the ocean and things like that. So you have to really uh, peel back the layers when you're looking at products that you're purchasing and things like that. Like, is this actually environmentally sound thing to be engaging in or not? Yeah. So it's a, it's, it's really just a a veneer, a a front of looking like you're environmentally cool when you're actually still pretty detrimental to the environment. I love the word veneer. And I am not using that in a while and I'm absolutely stealing that and definitely bringing that back to my vocab. (laughs) That is such a good one. But moving on to, well, not really moving on to, but sort of continuing the conversation, dare we say, in terms of the oil industry and what they're up to, obviously we touched on some of the tricks that they have up their sleeve already, but what are we expecting to see? Like we've seen some of this manipulation, some of this greenwashing and whatnot, like what do we expect that we're kind of like up against going into, you know, not just this next year or so, but honestly, like as it kind of relates to, you know, politics and campaigns, I mean, those things always intersect. So there any themes Mm. we should be like, ah, that's, that's shady. Like, you know, what do we look for? Such a good question, because I think we're, we see a lot of systems that are in complete breakdown right now, Uh, right? We see the healthcare system, our environment, capitalism as a general economic system is ultimately as it unregulated as it is now is destroying this planet and destroying people in this country. And so we're seeing a lot of breakdowns of all of these systems sort of happening at once. And so on the one hand, it's, it's incredibly overwhelming. And at the other hand, I think it's a, it's an unprecedented opportunity to get engaged and be a part of creating the, you know, a new way of being in this world and and in in this country and in the state of California. But I I would really, the fossil fuel industry is going to, is digging in for sure. And so you will see things like policies coming through for your legislators to vote on, or potentially even ballot initiatives that you're going to really have to do your homework about, because one of the fossil fuel industry's tactics is to really focus on jobs, right? And especially during this time of people losing jobs and economic um, insecurity and things like that, you'll see, you you would expect to see a lot of, um, you know, scary ads about people losing their jobs. And nobody wants to be responsible for that, right? And so we need to be careful that we're not allowing those kind of manipulative tactics to keep us from doing what is right 
both for the future in terms of our environment and for working people that will have to transition out of some of their jobs. So that's one thing I would be on the lookout for. And I think that we all have an opportunity with our local city council, with our supervisors, with our assembly people, et cetera, to see what's going on in their various levels of jurisdiction and to play an active role. And the other thing I would really encourage people to do is to run for office themselves. If we had people running in every city in this in this state on climate action, that would be a game changer. Mm-hmm. You know, when I first ran for office, I didn't know what I was doing, you know, <laughs> but I did know at that time it was the biggest difference I could make on climate change. And, and it did end up making a big difference in my community. And so I would encourage people to not just look to their uh, representatives and demand, but to consider running and being on the inside deciding also. Yeah. Totally. Love that. But speaking of two, I had a question just regarding this greenwashing situation as well Yeah. in politics. Like, can you also highlight some of the, I would say like policy solutions or like political, even just like rhetoric around climate solutions that we hear a lot, but are just kind of like fall under that greenwashing mm. idea of like, what are these policy solutions that people are pushing out there that like make people think we're doing stuff, but aren't actually addressing the the actual crisis. So there's a lot out there in that category, but the thing that comes to mind and that I've evolved my own thinking on is this idea of carbon neutrality. So for example, I led my city to adopt at the time, the most ambitious carbon neutrality goal in the United States, um, which was being carbon neutral by 2035. I think there are cities that have committed to, um, more earlier goals since then, and that's wonderful. And the trouble with carbon neutrality is that an aspect that can be a part of carbon neutrality are these offsets, right? And so what ends up happening or can happen and what we see more and more is that like, for example, a corporation can say, well, we're gonna be carbon neutral by 2030, but what does that mean? Yeah, what does that mean? If they are, it can mean a lot of different things, but one of the things it has meant is that we are going to con- essentially, for the most part, continue to utilize the, the toxic fossil fuels that we've traditionally used. And But in addition to that, we're going to pay some other community to like plant a thousand trees or whatever with this sort of theoretical carbon offset happening there. So let's say these aren't the right units of measure, but just to make it easy, let's say I'm going to burn 10 units of fossil fuels, continuing to burn those 10 units of fossil fuels. But if I pay somebody over here to plant enough trees to make up for that in terms of carbon, then I can still keep burning the fossil fuels. Yeah. I think people more and more are realizing that that is a problem for a lot of different reasons. Um, And not the least of which is because there are also environmental justice implications where if I have a refinery in a community that is again, a lower income, black or brown community, that refinery gets to keep going in this model, let's just say, as long as they offset it in, in part somewhere else. And so Carbon neutrality, I think, is a is a is an approach and a language that I think is be, that people are realizing has a lot of potential loopholes and can be highly problematic for for folks. Okay, that makes sense. That like kind of it, it blows my mind because it is such one of those things you do hear it all the time, and I feel mm-hmm. like people always talk about like the idea of like trading like offset and like being like oh let's make a whole carbon marketplace and make it, you know, sort of its own like capitalist based system on 
the environment, which I think is really interesting, but there are so many loopholes. And I feel like the loopholes in politics often are, are the issues that we continuously deal with. So Mm -hmm. to your point of, of that issue, you know, there are certain communities that definitely feel the impacts of climate change more than others. Can you give us a few examples of what type of communities, you know, feels the brunt of this and also sort of what forms does this take? Because obviously, you know, oil is a, is a huge, you know, climate contributor, but there's a lot of other types of pollution out there. And I don't think, you know, everyone is, is as well versed as we could be on that. Yes. So I live in San Luis Obispo. It's a predominantly white affluent community. I walk around and I don't see any oil extraction happening here at all whatsoever. It's a beautiful community. Air is clean. I, I, I don't know offhand what our rates of asthma are here, but I have not heard them being expo- you know, high at all. You would contrast that with, for example, the Central Valley and Bakersfield um, and Fresno area, where there is a lot of oil extraction mm-hmm. and a lot of lower income. I think predominantly there, I would say Latinx and other folks in those communities who tend, right, uh, don't have the political resources, power, et cetera, generally speaking, to fight those projects and are often considered even so-called sacrifice zones and those types of things. And then you do see direct public health impacts from that the pollution that's created where the, that oil extraction um, and processing is happening, really high rates of childhood asthma, for example, in the Central Valley. And so that's an exa- that's the kind of thing, you know, that the, when we're talking about this being an issue around a racism issue, essentially yeah. also. And if you, you know, hopefully you've been, your listeners have been impacted and have evolved and done a lot of their own work around anti-racism, especially with the movements over the last few years, I know I have and really see more and more the connection between racism and climate change. You know, even just thinking if we weren't so racist as a culture, where would we even put these projects? You know, these projects are allowed to continue on because we underlying that the the racist um, history of our country, including the state of California, allows for us to feel like, well, that's fine. We'll just put those over there. And, but God forbid, you know, that, that would never happen in my town. That would never happen in my town, you know, and that's just heartbreaking. And so for those of us, for all of us, that that's an aspect of this fight, so to speak, that we really need to keep in mind. You know, we talk about the apocalypse, you know, coming or what have you, but the apocalypse has already landed for a lot of folks in their community. Mm, And I think about those folks every day. Yeah, that's such an interesting way to put it. It's like so many people are just hearing it's literally that kind of don't look up to concept of uh-huh. people just kind of, you know, because it's not affecting them yet, just feeling being oblivious to it. But there it's so true and it's such a good point to raise that there are already communities dealing with the apocalypse. I think that's such a perfect way mm-hmm. to to put it and to paint that picture. Kind of moving on to like California specifically, where are, where's California on kind of like environmental racism and justice? So I think in general, California is not anywhere near where we think we are, if that makes sense. Yeah. Why do you say that? <laughs> For the, because I think, and even me, you know, I feel like, well, thank God I live in California. You know, it's progressive. Yeah. We care about the environment. We're not 
obviously I realize racism is everywhere, but like, if you contrast it with another state, you know, totally, you think feel, like feels the South a or lot, something. Yeah. Right. Where you hear about this and that happening and all that sort of thing. So I think we have the, and, and there's some truth in it. Like we are right. more progressive than another place. And we have totally. done some great environmental policies and all those things. We have done a lot. And when, and we have high rates of poverty here too, right? And that tends to also be rooted in, you know, black and brown communities, as we know. So there's just, there's so much work to do to really commit to the, to being the state that we think we already are, is how I feel about it. And we have, we have a really, I think we have more responsibility because we have more opportunity. You know, California has been a trendsetter in a lot of different fields and a lot of different ways, but certainly when it comes to policy, and I'll just speak for myself, the city of San Luis Obispo, where I was the mayor years ago, we were the first city in the world to ban smoking. And now that is wow. a policy that you see literally all over the world. Yeah, right? that's a fun fact. So, yeah, I <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> So we have an impact. We, we're the fifth biggest economy in the world. We have all the technology. We have, you know, so many resources um, and so many great folks here in this state. But we also have really high rates of poverty. We have the vast majority of unsheltered folks in the country live in the state of California. And we are not stepping up fully to take our, I, I, what I feel like is our rightful place as uh, national and global leaders on climate action. Totally. So there's a lot of work to be done, a lot more progress that needs to be, you know, put into motion for our listeners that are, you know, hearing this conversation going, oh my God, this is great. I need to get involved. I need to be, you know, that person helping to push that along. What are some things that they can get involved in, especially if some of them are still in school, maybe, you know, they, you know, they don't have necessarily, you know, the time or resources to run for office yet what would you recommend that, you know, sort of they do to get more involved on this issue? And especially like looking into this year, such a big election year. Yeah. So first of all, I am a big believer in showing up in a way that brings you most alive, you know? So like if speaking in front of groups makes you sick to your stomach, you know, like we have this idea of what like of getting engaged looks like, you know? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to look that way is what I'm saying. Like if you feel more, much more introverted and quiet and all these things, like, I feel like you, it's, you know, it's like a Venn diagram. Like what brings me alive? What am, what am I good at and how can I serve the world? And right there in the middle of those questions is where you should be showing up. Mm -hmm. So I think, yes, it could be running for office. And I know, you know, younger folks may not have time, but I bet it's actually more that they haven't really seen themselves in that role yet. And since this is called, and since this has got girl in the title, I also just want to name that women and girls have to be asked seven times to run for office before they'll run. So we are self-selecting out of running for office. When we run, we're just as likely to win as men, but we self-select out still. So I would, you know, encourage people to run. You are not too young. You are not too inexperienced, you know, and even if you don't win, your presence in those races will make a difference. So I would encourage that. But maybe before you do that, you might work on a campaign this election cycle. So find a local person, um, 
or, you know, a state state level person or someone that it really inspires you. I think ideally it would be someone that represents you in your district. But if, if you can't find that person, then find someone that is running on the issues that you care about and maybe work for their campaign in some small way. But I also think it can be things that you wouldn't normally uh, think of as contributing act ways to, to be a part of the solutions to climate action. Maybe you can provide childcare for someone that is running for office, for example, or maybe, you know, you're an English major and maybe you can write a letter to the editor for your local paper on why it matters to you. Or maybe you can offer, you know, maybe you can uh, do an internship through your university to support a professor who's working on some of the aspects of climate action, for example. And also, I just want to say too, this is an under talked about aspect of all of this, but I do think it's important to note that also we need to work on our own selves. You know, I think so much of what's going on in general is symptomatic of the deeper issue. And that is this idea of being separate, this idea of separation. We see so much division and so much separation happening right now. And I think climate crisis is in many ways a symptom also of separation that we believe that we are separate from the environment, that we believe we are separate from each other and separate on some levels, even from our own selves. And so I think that it is really valuable to work on one's own self and to be as intact and sort of resourced and know your own self-worth as much as possible so that you can show up in these challenging times and these challenging conversations with the idea of of knowing that we're all interconnected and that our fates are linked. And essentially Mm -hmm. there is no, there is no other. So I think that kind of work is also really needed right now too. Totally. What an amazing answer too. Cause like we, we talk about that a lot of like different ways to be an activist or different ways to get involved. And because, you know, the traditional way, and I think how a lot of people think of really politics in general, but especially if you go issue based, same thing, like you think, uh, you know, going to a protest is the only way that phone banking is the only way. It's like, no, there's so many different ways that you can cater to you and how you best think you could serve an issue. But I was thinking too, especially for you, I think this is true for all of us, but I think there's a special place that young people have in their communities and especially in their families. And so I think speaking what is what is your truth is so important. That's always been important, but it's essential right now. You know, I was just thinking about Don't Look Up and, you know, when Jennifer Lawrence is being interviewed on the news and she is, it's a kind of one of the more famous scenes and I won't mm-hmm. repeat it since there's a lot of swearing in it, but, <laughs> you know, like she's scared and she's sharing what in that, in the context of that film is true. And Maybe, maybe she, you know, we need to find ways to share those things in a way that people can hear them. But I think talking to our parents, talking to our grandparents, talking to our professors and our employee, our employers, et cetera, those conversations can really be game changers too. And so I wouldn't underestimate the power of just having one-on-one conversations with people in your life. So yes, you could end up speaking in front of March of thousands and that could be impactful, but so are those one-on-one conversations that totally. we have in our daily lives. Agreed. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been amazing. Thank you for sharing your work with us, but also just answering all of our questions. It's been super helpful and, and very inspiring too. So thank you. But yeah, is there anything that we can plug for you as far as like how anybody could 
reach you, reach the Romero Institute, support the Romero Institute? Yes, I would say go to Let's Green California and also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Let's Green California. My personal Instagram is at Heidi is Mighty. That's my Twitter handle as well. So it's a double I in there. Heidi is mighty. So people can see what I personally am working on and then what our organization is working on. I would maybe save the date of April 22nd, which is Earth Day, and keep an ear out for uh, developing potential big action around climate action on that day. Yeah. And then start to look at your local races and see what's going on there and see how you can get involved. Totally. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, y'all. Top stories of the week. Updates on this Ukraine um, World War III issue that we talked about last week. Because Biden is sending more troops to Europe amid Ukraine tension. But let's explain. Because according to this article, it's not as, as scary as that sounds. So here are some details. So we are sending 2,000 U.S.-based troops to Poland and Germany and shifting roughly 1,000 soldiers from Germany to Romania as demonstrations of American commitments to NATO allies um, amid fears of possible Russian military invasion of Ukraine. And in announcing the moves, the Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said they will happen in coming days and operate under U.S. command. He also said these are not permanent moves and wants to stress that the purpose is to reassure allies at a time of heightened tension over Russia's unusual buildup of military forces along Ukraine's border. So yeah, it's it's just a little, it's giving chess, you know? It's absolutely giving chess. It's giving checkers. It's giving like, honestly, maybe even Monopoly. I mean, oh. that's like the last game I, I played. It's giving, it's giving risk. It is giving risk. I remember my dad like used to want to play risk like with the family and that game takes five hours and oh like i'm also like i don't know how to do world domination like i don't i don't have any military experience to play this game i'm literally 10 like can you can we, can we play shoots and ladders like i this is just too much for my little brain and that honestly same thing with chess like me and my sister used to ball crying because my dad was trying to teach us chess and he would like get mad at us for not understanding sorry i actually <laughs> putting never him on played blast. chess or checkers which i should absolutely add to my never have i ever list which is really weird I'm so mad because this one kid I was dating, like, actually played. Which one did he play? I've never really played chess either. Chess? No, chess. And I was like, oh, this will be convenient. He'll teach me how to play. And then we broke up. So, Mm. honestly, that's the most devastating part of that breakup. I could have been a chess whiz and then gone on to whatever chess professional thing. The Queen's Gambit. Yeah. I, no, yeah, after my dad tried to teach us, I, I never played. I never even finished a game with him either. Like, we just... It was a bad day for me and my sister, like full tears all day. But sorry, let's continue. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So anyways, according to Kirby, he also said these troops are not going to fight in Ukraine. And he's referring to basically these soldiers being sent from Fort Bragg, which is in North Carolina, to Germany and Poland, and those being shifted from Germany to Romania. The thousand going to Romania are members of a cavalry unit and are in addition to about 900 U.S. troops already in the country. He said as well, it's important that we send a strong signal to Mr. Putin to the world as well as, you know, in relation to the U.S. commitment to NATO. And I do think this is, like, this is such a large web of a conversation. But, like, in our intro, we were talking about, like, symbolism and politics and, like, how that, like, matters. And we also kind of talk about that in this particular episode of, like, what, like, mm-hmm. declaring a climate emergency does in actuality versus symbolism. And it is interesting how much it, like, plays into politics, like, 
if these yep. troops aren't actually in a fight, but like showing like everything optics. is like a optics move, which I think is really interesting. And like we said, deep dive. We'll talk about it. Nice, and, nice uh, tie-in. Lots of you tied it into the intro. You tied it into the interview. Look at you. This has been fun. But yeah, go circling back. <laughs> Biden has said he will not put American troops in Ukraine to fight any Russian incursion. All. Though, the United States is supplying Ukraine with weapons to defend itself and seeking to reassure allies in Eastern Europe that Washington will fulfill its treaty obligation to defend them in the event they are attacked. Military moves come amid stalled talks with Russia over its military buildup at Ukraine's borders, and they underscore growing fears across Europe that Russian President Vladimir Putin Wow, that was fun to say it like that. Is poised to invade <laughs> Ukraine. Smaller NATO countries on the alliance's eastern flank worry that they would be next, although Russia said has no intention of initiating conflict, is willing to continue diplomatic efforts. Biden has said recently that he intended to provide additional U.S. forces to NATO allies in Eastern Europe as reassurance of an American commitment to treaty allies. Yeah, so it's a lot of optics, a lot of optics game. I think that's where... This is lying, it lied there last week as well. So it's just a continuation, I think, of, of all of that. So Agreed. we can take, we can breathe still, but, <sighs> you know, obviously any talks of deploying troops always makes you quiver, you know, quiver a little bit. But there it is. All right, on to the next one. Okay, SCOTUS. Good old SCOTUS. Okay, no, I just had a very inappropriate thought. I'm gonna keep it to myself. Anyways. Regardless, oh. <laughs> regardless, for once in my life, for once in my life. Okay. Anyways, Biden met with the Senate Judiciary Committee leaders on Tuesday, yesterday, to discuss, you guessed it, the upcoming U.S. Supreme Court vacancy and the president's promise to nominate a black woman to the high court. Aides said that Biden's list of potential candidates is longer than three. Wowee. Oh. The White House also pushed back Monday on the idea that the president would be open to gaming the system by choosing a nominee solely based on her likelihood of garnering bipartisan support. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. all right. I'm going to leave that one alone for now. Just yeah. going to let it sit. Anyways, Judiciary Chairman Dick Durbin. That is also just such a fucking fun thing to we say. We should have some type of like moment. I don't know when or I don't know how where we just like bring in all the names that just really shake us to our core and we rank them of like who really brings it home with like the best name. I, I agree. Like, do they have like a great alliteration moment like i think that those are usually my favorite and i or the I double the do, double letters yeah like that's like my fave like one day like at, when i have kids like i might try and do that but it's really well, gonna that's depend me. on like that is you. i was told i have a cool name the other day you do well bartender. your middle name is also like yeah cool so like bada bing bada boom yeah, I was like, wow, what a compliment, bartender. Thank That's you. That's cute. Look at that flirting. I think he was flirting with me. Uh, yeah. No shit, Sherlock. But I've never had a guy flirt with me and say, oh, you have a really cool name. <laughs> I've been like, thanks, friend. <laughs> Pally pal. <laughs> thanks, pal. Wait, I kind of love that. I'm also really curious. Wait, I'm going to just Google this for like a hot second. Like, you know how like oh my God. Dick can be. CNN president. I saw that. Undisclosed relationship with colleague. Tea. So curious. So sorry, curious. guys. Let me. I don't want to leave anybody out, but CNN president Jeff Zucker resigns. Just breaking, citing undisclosed relationship with a colleague. I would love more of that tea, please. Spilling. Thank you. Yeah, we will hopefully have an update by next week on that because 
that is developing as they say. I was really curious like for a hot second if you know how like some people like my grandpa was named Richard but people called him Dick. If yep. like Dick Durbin was like a Richard Durbin really and it wasn't as like great of an alliteration moment. Also I could just go off on like names like Richard and how those got you know the Dick nickname. Like there's a few names like that where it's just like doesn't make any type of sense or no. I think like one day a Richard like someone just like was bullied and was called Dick all the time and then like he maybe just own, started to own it and then like just Dick became the nickname for Richards everywhere. <laughs> I love this tale. I love this tale. However, if you do actually have any Richard slash Dicks listening and you know like the background, like please let us know. I'm, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I guess we should get back into the story. So Dick Durbin, like we said, and ranking minority member Chuck Grassley of Iowa, Republican BT Dubs, will meet with Biden at the White House to go over potential nominees. So this is a situation that was happening to replace Justice Stephen Breyer, who announced his retirement last week. Biden himself served as the head of the Judiciary Committee when he was a senator and presided over the confirmations of six high court picks, including Breyer, which is interesting. Biden has said since his campaign that he would nominate a black woman to the nation's highest court. And he personally interviewed a few of the nominees when they were under consideration for appointment to the federal bench. Some Republicans have already voiced support for U.S. District Court Judge J. Michelle Childs, who's a favorite of key Democratic ally, South Carolina Rep. Jim Clyburn. But the White House pushed back on the idea of choosing a candidate just to get bipartisan support, saying Biden would choose the best woman for the job, period. The president's going to select a woman, a black woman who's qualified, who's prepared, who has impeccable experience to serve in the court. He's going to do that based on her credentials and, of course, having a discussion with her and not through gaming out the system, according to the press secretary on Monday. Durbin said he wanted a speedy confirmation, but he did not want to arbitrarily rush the process. He said he does not want to put his thumb on the scale and talks with Biden, but having a nominee who is a sitting judge makes the argument more credible as he's reaching out to Republicans. So yeah, this was definitely a huge campaign promise for Biden that is now, you know, kind of coming to fruition. So here is where we are in terms of how how easy someone can be appointed these days in the Senate and kind of what the climate in the Senate right now is towards just Biden's potential nominees here. So basically, since Biden has come into his presidency, he has appointed the most judges during the first year of a presidency since JFK. So across, this isn't just obviously SCOTUS, there's judges across the land that need to be appointed by a president. So Biden has had a lot of success with that so far um, in his presidency. And so that achievement is giving Democrats some hope that the coming fight over the Supreme Court seat in the Senate will allow them to kind of be able to go on the political offensive and move past just kind of the the past kind of depressing legislating that's been happening in the Senate as of late. And as always, though, two Democratic senators will be the center of attention. Guess who they are? Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema of West Virginia and Arizona. And while their opposition to changing Senate rules stalled the party's signature on voting legislation, they have been reliable votes for Biden's nominees to the courts. And in the 44 roll call votes held so far on Biden's judicial picks, there has yet to be a single Democrat defection. So they're hoping, again, that's going to be the case in, in, in this nominee as well. So they just, so that streak is voting well right now because the future nominee in the 50-50 Senate, Kamala Harris, um, would break any ties and that's what they need in order to confirm this, this nominee potentially. And if Democrats can stay together and we can get these two 
on board for fucking once in their lives, then we might be in a good place here. So that's kind of where it's lying right now. And Democrats are eager for Biden to make his selection so they can get started. And Biden said he will put forward a nominee by the end of February. So keep your eye out for that. And he said that the, our process is going to be rigorous. I will select a nominee worthy of Justice Breyer's legacy of excellence and decency. So big campaign promise here for Biden to fulfill. So far, it's looking good as far as the nature of the Senate right now and how everyone's feeling. So hopefully this goes smoothly and you know he can fulfill this promise because he is currently behind on his campaign promises but we don't need to get in get into that today so that is it for this week i am actually just remissed because i forgot to go over our housekeeping in our intro and that's just unacceptable unacceptable by me so (sighs) it's dirty as fuck in here and i need to get the broom out so First things first, Samantha, there is an event hosted by Girl on the Gov happening in New York City. Can you tell everybody about that? NYC, baby. Okay, so March 12th, 3 to 4.30, we're having a really epic event at Y7. So if you love working out, you know hot yoga, you definitely know Y7, iconic studio here and elsewhere. But we're having a event at the Flatiron location, which is super sick, great for IGs, let me freaking tell you. Anyways, we are going to do a classic combination of things. We're going to sweat it out. We're going to flow it out. We're going to do the damn thing. And then we're going to also hear from a panel of politicos, obviously get the 411 on the midterm elections, what to look out for, like how to prepare. Like this year is about to get crazy. So definitely politically buckle up. And we want to make sure you guys are ready to rumble and like understand the flow of things. So tickets are officially available. We'll obviously be throwing that all over social media and all that good stuff. But in the meantime, it is also linked in the bio of this. Come yourself, come with friends, do what you wanna do in terms of rolling through, but we can't wait to see you guys there. You have any questions, uh, feel free to drop us a DM, send us a note at info at girlinthegov.com. We can't wait to see you guys there. So yeah, this is also Go great, check it out. great moment to wear your Girl in the Gov merch, TBH. Mm-hmm. I've done it there a million times. I'm like. They've got some cute like mirror situations for some cute pics. Like we love a mirror pic. We do. Yes, go check that out. Episode description, it's all linked. And if you're looking for a summer internship, then you can go to girlonthegup.com slash careers. It is a social media marketing, PR research, all the things. And you'll learn a lot. Ask our intern Janique. <laughs> <laughs> we're really we're putting her to work. But yeah, so go check that out. All the info is on our website. So that's girlonthegov.com slash careers. If you're not looking for an internship, but you want to be in- involved in Girl on the Gov and our community and want some maybe political networking opportunities, then you can also go to our website and our brand ambassador page, learn all about it and sign up if you're interested. We would absolutely love to have you and love to meet you. So go check that out. Also linked. And... There's also a donation link for this podcast. If you guys are loving this show and want to help us keep the lights on, keep it rolling, then you can donate a few quarters to the donation link in the episode description as well. I think that's it. It's starting to look pretty sparkly in here. And I think, I think that's it. So go check all of those things out. Everything's linked and subscribe rate review tell your friends about us you guys 
such an important year, midterms, and everyone needs to be paying attention. So check on your friends, get them listening to Girl on the Gov, and we'll be back with another fresh episode next week. So we will be talking to you all next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.